Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Nick and Lewis Goldberg are back with a new episode with special guest Deborah Borchardt, executive editor and co-founder of Green Market Report, a national news outlet focused on covering the financial side of the rapidly growing cannabis industry. In addition to its award-winning news coverage, Green Market Report has established itself as a leader in targeted cannabis conferences that have become must-attend events, including the upcoming Tech Summit taking place on September 8th in San Francisco. In this episode, Nick and Lewis connect with Deb to discuss some of the biggest stories driving the cannabis industry, the news of the green market report being acquired last October by Cranes Communications, and what it means for Deb and her team going forward, as well as what attendees can expect at the green market's tech summit next week. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Deb Borchard, executive editor of Green Market Report. And we're back for another episode of The Green Rush. We have Deb Borchardt, executive editor and co-founder of The Green Market Report, joining us today. Deb, it's great to have you back on the show. Nick, I am happy to be here. (laughs) We're happy to have you. So, you know, a lot's happened, I think, since the last time you appeared on this show. Most notably, um, Green Market Report um, was acquired. You merged with Cranes Communications, the, the business magazine. Can you update our readers just on the general growth from the Green Market Report and, and how that all came together with you working with Cranes? So uh, we did get acquired by Cranes in October of 2021. Um, I had always had that plan to hopefully exit with um, a larger mainstream media company that could help grow Green Market Report, someone that had uh, experience and could help guide me in that effort to grow and expand. And they approached us and it was just a a great offer and a great company. It's privately owned. It is owned by the third generation of people within the family of the Crane family. So the Casey Crane and his brother Chris are running the company, and they are very successful in the B2B area. So they own several titles within the auto industry, uh, also within healthcare and within advertising. And they find these areas where they just go in and dominate. And so Remarker Report was the cannabis title that they wanted to acquire in order to then dominate the field. And that's where we're headed. Talk about that for a little bit, because, you know, Crane is uh, a niche organization. It may be a national news organization, but unless you are in the B2B space or you understand business, you know, local business, you may not be aware of how big Crane is. And you mentioned that they're in the automotive space, that they're in healthcare. Talk about, you know, the the Crane organization. And as you were looking to have an exit and other than saying that I got paid, um, like what, what was it 
that really attracted you, you know, because you had come out of other niche publications. You were at the street and you've been you've been in the media for a long time. What are they doing? What did they what was their sell and what has the difference been? So I did have um, other offers and um, I had really stalled on my answering to those other offers because I just felt that they weren't bringing to the table what I really needed. And that was a group that understood that I had a mission for good, responsible journalism. And two, um, I needed someone that was basically going to take the heavy lift off my shoulders of how now do we make this make money? Because being in media, it's really, really hard to make money. And these guys, you know, when Crane showed up, um, not only do they have a commitment to good journalism, but they also figured out how to get the journalism to make money. And so those were the first two things. Those, those were really the two big things that were important to me. And here they did. They came and they had both of those things. Um, to your point, you know, if maybe people don't understand how it can, um, how a company can dominate a space. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say auto dealerships. You and I don't work at an auto dealership. I don't really care about the news within the auto dealership world, but the people that are in the auto dealership world care a lot about that news. And, and Crane basically owns the publication that is kind of the, the publication of record for that group. So it may not be the biggest group in publishing, but those people in that world, they all get that publication because it's got the information they need. And so that's kind of the goal here with cannabis is that the people in the cannabis industry are going to start to look to Green Market Report for all that news. So in order to get there, we had to grow because I've been doing Green Market Report for um, four years at that point by myself, essentially, with uh, a group of freelancers and contract labor people. And I had assembled a pretty good team, but I needed a group of full-time staff and they were able to come to me and with that commitment. And we're now really starting to see the fruits of that commitment um, happening right now. So do they have a, a vision, a timeline for you to say, look, Green Market Report is a, a phenomenal starting point from which we can build a the dominant um, insider brand for the cannabis industry. How long do, did they see or in your conversations with them, how long did they see it taking for uh, the, the for your publication to be to to to, to whether it's to supplement or displace um, the the MJ Biz of the world, or just basically become the crane of of cannabis? So they had made several acquisitions in a short amount of time, and I was one of those. Um, so I kind of got into the pipeline of properties to address. And really, uh, we were going to go onto their platform, but they were redesigning Crane Chicago, which they, they were very close to wrapping that up. So, and, and in fact, I was just on a call yesterday and saw the template of what the website's going to look like. So what we're going to be doing now is, I, I would say it was for the first six months, it was just kind of business as usual. But in the last few months, we've we've just ramped it up like 100 degrees. So we've made hires. Uh, we have a 
company that is uh, that does digital media branding that is analyzing green market report right now. Um, so our goals are, uh, so we have a few goals here. The first was to expand the team, which we have completed our expansion. And we hired Janelle Stelton-Holtmeyer from MJ Biz. Well, she was let go from MJ Biz, but she's our managing editor and she is amazing. We also hired John Schroyer from MJ Biz, who is, in my opinion, one of the best cannabis reporters out there. We have a breaking news reporter named Adam Jackson, and we have a, a person in charge of our sales and partnerships, and that's Chris Cohen. So now we've got the team assembled. So we got our team assembled. We're going to be redesigning the website. We're going to be, uh, and hopefully that's either going to be fourth quarter or first quarter 2023. And so we've got a redesign of the website coming up and we're also going to be launching a new newsletter and that is soft launch October 1st. So Crane Communications is really well known for having um, a, a hefty newsletter. So they do a morning and it, it depends. If you're with Crane Chicago, Crane Detroit, you might have morning, afternoon and end of day newsletters with the idea that people aren't really going to websites anymore for their news but they like it being pushed to them. So that's something that uh, we will probably be doing. Um, at this time, the website's going to remain free, but it's very possible that sometime next year, we might switch to a subscription model uh, with a paywall, but we'll see. Uh, right now, uh, like I said, the first thing was to expand the team, which we did. And now our next uh, task is redesigning our newsletters and also redesigning the website. So that's that's all in play. I want to stick on on this topic because it, it's been great watching. You know, since I think I was at like the launch party for for Green Market Report when you, when you first started a couple of years ago, and just watching how your coverage of the industry has morphed and how many different buckets that you're, you're now covering on this. And you know, I was hoping that you could expand on that a little bit more, just like from where you started to this point today, with how much coverage you guys are doing, and then also you know, frame that against the lack of coverage that the mainstream outlets aren't giving this industry. Like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, even LA Times, I don't think has a dedicated cannabis business reporter, which seems very odd considering how large the California market is in this space. You know, can, can you talk about all those different um, this aspects of what you guys are doing there? Sure. So my mission never wavered. I always wanted to cover the cannabis industry uh, from a financial point of view, which is was my background. Um, as you mentioned, Lewis, I worked at the street with Jim Cramer for many years. And I have Booyah! a right? Booyah, bad money. And, uh, and I have a Wall Street background. So I felt like that was my secret sauce was being able to cover the cannabis industry in a way that um, a lot of the cannabis media wasn't able to cover. And that also meant, you know, kind of, calling out people that were bad players or calling out uh, companies that weren't performing well, but in turn also applauding companies that were performing well and, and doing and doing well. Um, and I think that in, you know, in the early days that a lot of cannabis media did not do that. It was all just rainbows and unicorns. And you never wanted to say anything bad about cannabis because that would be a black mark on, on the whole cannabis industry. And I just didn't subscribe to that. Um, now, the thing is, and as I would tell companies and their representatives is, 
okay, if I wrote a bad story about you right now and you're upset about that, okay. But think about it this way. If you get your act together and then I write a good story about that, that's way more credible that I have now written the story that says, you're really doing things right now. Um, I said, if I just always said everything was wonderful, then my credibility is like, eh, nobody, everybody's just gonna like yawn because like, well, she says something great about everybody, even if they aren't great. Um, so that's that's kind of where I'm at. And honestly, Crane is very supportive of that. Um, one of our goals was to build up the amount of content that we're pushing out. And so by having more writers and, you know, that that's going to help tremendously. So we're going to be able to really ramp up the amount of content that we're putting out and, and, and doing like some really nice investigative pieces that to your point, Nick, yeah, regular, regular media, New York Times, Washington Post, and you can name several of them. I mean, look at even the Denver Post, the Denver Post mm -hmm. had the, the whole cannabis beat and then they just scrapped it. And yeah, they, they eliminated had, um, it. Boston, the, the Boston Globe had a whole team of cannabis reporters and they scaled them back as well. And and the Boston Globe's reporter was actually a, a legitimate, you know, uh, investigative journalist who, yeah, who looked at Dan great. Look, as a PR person and as somebody who owns uh, one of the leading PR companies in the space, Dan Adams has always been somebody who's been a challenge to work with because he has looked askance at the industry and been, and, and that's a good, that's good. Yeah, Actually, yeah. it's good. It's good that you are not, you know, in the bag for the industry. You know how to read a balance sheet. You know how to parse through an earnings conference call and say, and there's a little bullshit going on in there. And that's good for the industry. If this industry is going to be viewed as a, a an important source of jobs, tax revenue, providing vital services and goods to our economy, it has to be covered no differently than pharma or biotech or cars or anything else. And there are a very few handful of reporters. You are one of them. Tiffany Carey at Bloomberg is one of them. Dan Adams is one of them. But that we can name them on a hand, on a single hand, that's actually really a bad thing because it means that the industry still isn't taken as seriously as it could be. You know, three years ago, my favorite stat I used to you know, trot out was that there were 10 times as many people working in legal cannabis as in coal. Now it's 20 times as many people work in legal cannabis as in the coal industry. But the coal industry gets covered like there's no, you know, no end. Cannabis doesn't. How does that change? When does the media step up and understand? Is it a question of advertising? Is it a what what has to change for the mainstream media to catch up to you? You know, I, I, to me, and the, like my pet peeve is when I see regular media call cannabis, pot, weed. I mean, I don't have a Even marijuana. I don't really have an issue with the word marijuana. And sometimes I use it for alliteration purposes, but, <laughs> but I've heard, and, and I've heard disagreements. I've, I've been in multiple conferences where I've heard disagreements on the word marijuana, people against it, but people for it and, and passionately for it. But when I go to like I was on Law 360 this morning and literally every headline that they had on Law 360 was 
pot lawyer, pot company, pot this, pot that. And I was like, really? Like you have a whole, your, your tab for your coverage says cannabis, but every single sentence you have, every headline, you call it pot. And I felt like that, it, I know it's maybe just semantics, but I feel like um, that would be the first step is if we were able to get those journalists to quit calling it by those names. Because to your point, Lewis, are you going to do a coal story and call it slag? I mean, I think that, I mean, right, isn't that the can, the coal? I think or that's even if it's alcohol, are you calling it hooch? Or booze. Mm-hmm. Booze yeah. killers say sales are down and they occasionally no. booze will come in right but it's not always it's it's you know when 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 constellation is covered or molson is covered it's not covered as booze it's alcohol right and and yeah and i i, I to me that that's that's kind of where it is and i also it, it's very possible too that you could argue that maybe the editorial level people just don't think it's all that. I mean, uh, when I was, uh, one of the reasons I, I left the street was I was doing cannabis coverage and I was having to do it at the end of the day because they wanted me to get my other work done and they had no interest in it. You know, they, they, they were like, yeah, meh. and, and to this day, you know, I would argue Benzinga has stolen that part of the market from them. They had the opportunity to, I was there. I could have taken that and run with it, but they just weren't interested in it. And I think that we're just still seeing that lack of interest in it, you know? So that's, you, you, you bring up a good, a good segue into talking about your conference, right? So for niche media companies, the majority of the money that they often make is through events. And Benzinga is a good example, right? Benzinga has multiple conferences in the cannabis space and in the psychedelic space, and they, they sell the heck out of them and they use those revenues to then supplement their earned media coverage side of it. Um, you started to do that with green market report. Um, I remember us helping you with your first psychedelics conference. Um, and you now have um, your cannabis tech conference coming up um, in September in San Francisco. Yes. Talk about your conference, this conference specifically, your conference plan generally, and that what Cranes is doing with you to build out a conference offering. You are correct. We have a tech conference, our Green Market Report Cannabis Tech Summit on September 8th in San Francisco. It's a half day event. Um, I am a true believer of the targeted cannabis conference idea. I, I don't like these big, general, broad, vague, cannabis conferences where you're not really sure what's going to be covered. Um, I don't want to waste people's time. So Mm -hmm. I want you to come to my event and only the people coming that really need to hear that topic. So if I'm all about cultivation and I'm really just about seed genetics is tech where I want to go. You know, or, or, you know, I I think tech does kind of overlay on a lot of areas, but I also, I, you know, it, I, I just think that that's going to be the way for conferences going forward. And I'm just a big believer in that, that you, you're better served by going to a targeted focused conference 
I mean, we were in, and I'm not throwing MJ biz under the, the bus. I'm just saying we were looking at it yesterday at the, uh, there's like five different forums and, <laughs> and it's all over the three days. So if I wanted to go to a psychedelic panel, am I choosing between that or am I choosing between the cannabis investment panel or am I choosing to, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and I, how do you choose which one? It, there's just too much. It's too much happening. Um, so I think that targeted events are really the way to go. And that's kind of my plan for even 2023. Uh, we are looking at doing something with the Super Bowl and cannabis and sports. Uh, we are it's also- It's a brilliant idea. It's, yeah, we just have to, we're, just, we're looking at the venues right now. The sooner we can get that wrapped up, the better. Um, I'm, I've kind of like trying to get San Francisco done <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I, I'm already looking at spaces though. And again, I'm so lucky because I now have this, uh, person on my team Chris Cohen who can help me figure all this stuff out, which is great. Cause before I was kind of on my own. Um, so we're going to reprise the women's event and we'll do a psychedelics event. So we know for sure that those three we're going to do in 2023 and we may add more we're having a lot of people are actually uh approaching us to to do some events together with them so we're kind of going through all those different offers and seeing which ones make sense for us um and to your point about media and events um the media industry you know we made our uh money on advertising and that worked even well online until you had people like Google who changed the algorithms and the ad search issues made it much harder. And so what companies had to do was turn to events. And you see this at the Wall Street Journal are very popular with their events. I worked for a hot minute for Women's Wear Daily or WWD as they like to call themselves. They do 10 events a year. They're, they're, they have a huge event team. Um, so yeah, can, uh, all media has resorted to doing events to bring in extra money and Look, cram- CNBC does it too, right? All the time. All the time. CNBC, Forbes, fortune, they all exactly. are the events business. Yeah. And that's how you can pay for the journalism now. And so, uh, green market reports, no different. And crane communications was also equally heavy in, um, doing events. And I've also kind of started to to lean into this half day event because then people can go to work in the morning, check their desks, check their online, you know, emails, blah, 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 hit lunch, start the event. After three or four hours, honestly, your brain's done. You're, you're, you're tapped out. And then you have a cocktail party, you network, and then you can go to your business dinner. So I feel like it's just, it's compact, it's focused, it's targeted. It gives you what you need. It's, that's all you need. And the frustrating thing I find for me in media, though, is now we're kind of going up against um, what I call media, comp- the, the media mills uh, the, or the conference mills. I'm sorry. Um, and those are companies that are just conference companies. They don't have any real connection to cannabis. They're not doing cannabis journalism for the most part. They're really just a conference company. And cannabis may be a conference for them one month. And then the next month, it's franchise businesses. And the next month, it's you know, I don't know, um, auto shop things. And and it makes it really hard for the media to compete with those companies. And they're not really giving back to cannabis, whereas I feel like we are, you know, we're, we're giving, you know, tickets to social equity people, and we're helping out women in cannabis. And 
we're trying to really be a good neighbor within the cannabis industry and they, they don't really care. They're just, they're just conference companies. So I, that that's kind of hard going up against them. So yeah, I, hope it, that, I hope the cannabis industry supports our events, <laughs> you know, and, and, and as someone that's attended a lot of these events, like, I think I really appreciate like the way that you're condensing it and making it like really focused on there. Cause I've, I like, again, no knock on MJ biz, but yeah, it's an right. overwhelming experience. Um, walking through the different halls that they have trying to network as much as you possibly can. That can be a lot, but, um, I'm very excited that you're bringing the event to Phoenix, uh, the Phoenix area for, for January hearing that about the Super Bowl because uh, ever since I relocated out here, it's like I still get the invites for stuff in New York and all that. And it's like the FOMO is real uh, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and missing out, seeing all seeing all my folks from back there. Um, so yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll have a link um, to, to the uh, event, the Tech Summit uh, site uh, in the show notes. So anybody that's interested in wanting to to attend can get uh, all the information there. Um, our very own Chris Crane is is on the list of speakers. So already right there, that, that's well, a great and knowledgeable spot right there. And full disclosure, KCSA is uh, one of the lead sponsors. Um, and, and that actually leads me to the question I wanted to ask. You know, you're a serious journalist. Nick and I are public relations professionals. Your former partner, Cynthia, was a public relations professional, and you work with lots of PR people. Yep. Can you talk about the difference between good PR and bad PR and what role people like we actually play in helping shape journalism? Because, you know, I often get called a publicist, and I, that makes me cringe, right? Because I think publicists are seen as people who lie or spin or, or, you know, deny access where, you know, for, for my firm, for me personally, and for how I help teach others who work with me, it's always the, the, when asked, how do I respond to a question from a reporter? It's always been default to the truth. The truth is always the best way to answer any question, but you get pitched. You talk to lots of PR professionals. What role do we actually play? Um, are we helpful, hurtful, or somewhere in between? So good, a good PR team is helpful. And they anticipate the journalist's needs. And they understand how journalism works, which is you're usually on a deadline and you don't have a whole lot of time. Um, that, to me, is the big difference. So let's, let's throw out an example. Um, we know, a, let's say... We think a piece of legislation is going to be decided on Monday. It could go either way. It could go yes or no. A good PR person is going to go to their clients and say, listen, this legislation is coming out on Monday. Can you give me a quote in the positive and also in the negative? So depending on the outcome, we have a quote ready to go for yes or no, that this legislation gets passed. This is the example. So you go to your client, your client says, okay, well, it got passed and I'm happy. It didn't get passed and I'm mad. So you send that over to the journalist, probably on Friday, best case. The journalist on Monday, the legislation comes out and it's yes or no. I already have that email from that PR company with a quote ready to roll. So I don't have to try to find one. And a bad PR team is going to be one that um, on Tuesday emails me and says, hey, would you like to interview my client? He can tell you about that legislation that came out on Monday. Which means, one, no, I don't have time to talk to you. 
And two, you're a day late. And okay, so now if I even try to, let's say I set up this interview with this pitch, that's a day or two of setting up the interview. So now I'm into Thursday. Well, that that's old news at this point. So that's the difference between good PR and bad PR. And I think for the clients, they probably have a hard time understanding the benefits of having a PR team until things go badly. <laughs> and, and when things go badly, they turn to you and they need you badly because now you have to help them through whatever the situation is, whether it's a CEO that behaved badly or the company had something, I don't know, mold on their cannabis or who knows, a lawsuit that they have to answer. Um, you have to have that PR team to put your best foot forward. Um, because I'm, I'm the journalist, I'm going to be a skeptic. And so it's going to be up to the PR team to be transparent to your point, Lewis, but be transparent in the best possible way. Because if you're not, if you're not leading that narrative and telling that story and their story, the way they want it told, I'm just going to tell it the way I, I see it. And that might not be what you want. <laughs> so that's to me is, is, you know, where the PR people come in really handy for those companies. Um, it's, it's controlling the narrative and that's what you want. Um, especially when, like I said, if, if an employee files a lawsuit against you, let's just throw that one out. You know, all I'm going to see is the case on record of that employee saying, the company did this and the company did that. And they didn't have Hershey bars in the break room. And it was horrible. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get a parking spot. And isn't that awful? And the, the toilet paper they had was Scott's and it was crappy and it was really thin. And that's all I'm going to see. And, and so uh, the, the way that the good PR people would be ahead of that and say, yeah, this lawsuit came out about this employee, but boy, you know, we can't talk about it, but really here's what's happening. And, and so you, you try to control that narrative and get ahead of it. The worst thing you can do to, to, is to say nothing because because you say nothing and I, that, that's green light for me to say, kind of go with it with what I want. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. And I think a lot of our clients have that same like, Oh no moment that you described, like when stuff isn't going well, they're like, Oh no, uh, what do we do guys? What do we do? And I know Lewis and I have gotten a, a number of those calls in the, back. In well, the and, I, and, and I would argue a lot of these cannabis companies went public and probably didn't understand what that meant, which was, you got to put all your numbers out there. And that means you are going to be opened up to criticism and they don't they're they're not used to that they're used to just everybody saying how wonderful the cannabis industry is and now all of a sudden they have people beating them up over their numbers and they're not used to that and they get mad and they, they, they're like this is unfair and it's like well Ooh, i hate that word <laughs> i hate the fair word yeah this it's, isn't fair this no. isn't fair we have so many challenges in the cannabis industry or or whatever and you know, she, she said something about our revenue, you know, and it, I mean, the way I look at it, you can't take that shareholder money and then just walk away. You have to answer to your shareholders. And 
that also means you have to answer to the public. The public's going to see this stuff and you can try to hide it, but we're going to find it. I mean, for the last two years, the public markets have not been pleasant to be a public cannabis company, right? And if you just look at the last year, most of the public cannabis companies are off 50, 70% from where they were. I think I saw S&P, the TSX index was down 74% for the past year. Having said that, up 2% in the past month. (laughs) Yeah, but, but right. So, but the reality is, uh, you know, there is, it doesn't seem to be a correlation between the amount of cannabis that is being sold and the, the share price, right? right? Because if you look back historically, three years ago, two years ago, plus, you know, the shares were trading at, you know, 70, 80, 90, 150% higher, but the amount of weed that was being sold then was de minimis. Now we're talking in the tens of billions of dollars of legal sales in the 35 plus states across the country that cannabis is being sold, but it's not being reflected in the share price. Yeah. Why? Well, the cannabis stocks trade in block together. So you can have a great company and a crappy company, and they're going to just trade in a huge block together. And so that that's unfortunate, but that's just how the, the group is trading. I believe it's because, you know, we had so many of these ETFs that went out and the ETFs have a set amount of companies that they basically can invest in with a set amount of liquidity. And so those same names are in each ETF. And then, so if somebody's buying an MSO or, you know, which, which one of the ETFs that's out there, um, they're buying the whole group. And so those trades are moving the whole group. And then I've heard so many stories about just stock jocks, just playing, playing the, the ETFs and playing the stocks and not really caring about the underlying numbers. It's not about that at all. They're just playing the game of, of stock trading to make money. So little little glitches and little shifts in the trading, they can make some money. Um, they can make money just shorting it, writing it all the way down, which is probably what a lot of them have done. Um, when you start to see them starting to reverse course and go back up, that's going to catch them, you know, short. Um, but to be fair, you know, there has been a lot of negative news. You've got negative news about the California market, the Colorado market, the Oregon market, uh, even Michigan with sales plateauing. I was in Michigan, uh, Massachusetts yesterday talking to a company about, yes, there's been compression in the Massachusetts market. So more competition, lower prices for the underlying product. Uh, You know, that doesn't change how much it costs to run a dispensary or to grow the product. So yeah, but the average the average plant costs anywhere from 150 to 400 bucks to grow, and mm-hmm. the average plant yields approximately a pound. Mm-hmm. The finished good now is selling for about 1,100 bucks a pound, right? You're still talking about anywhere from four to two x of finished good to cost of good. There should be a, a tremendous amount of revenue going into it. And the reality is because of 280E and other cost of capital challenges that the the industry still isn't as profitable as it could be. But it's profitable. These guys are the bigger, the big five are making money. They're not, they're not making the amount of money that they could, but they are all profitable. Yeah. Some of them are, some of them are pretty, 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 
did good. But I think that when you hear market headlines about maturing markets like Colorado and Oregon and how the sales have either plateaued or even started to go down a little bit, that doesn't make investors very happy uh, because all you want is growth, 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 growth. You just want numbers constantly going up every year. And if you see them kind of starting to go sideways and thinking like, and and again, you can't really advertise to get more cannabis consumers to come and shop. You can't do that. So, and it, get, it makes people a little uncomfortable trying to get people, hey, come smoke pot, come smoke weed with us. Um, makes people a little squirmy. So it's it's a it's a tricky thing. Um, and then you throw in the New York market that everybody had had very high hopes for about being the biggest market in the country. And it's a hot mess. So yeah, I mean, look at Ascend. Ascend just said, you know what? That those MedMen assets in New York, you can have them. We don't even want them. That I thought that was, I, I thought that was the most incredible news of all this week. I, I was stunned at that news, and I felt like if the New York regulators didn't read that and understand what that was telling them, that was very damning. Very damning. To walk yeah. that deal and and the fact that it wasn't really discussed very much just I mean I, I thought that was I thought it was huge yeah with, with you being um, based in the, in the New York New Jersey area Deb like let's shift the let's shift the focus and keep it here on, on those two markets you know being on the ground there you know give us your 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 full throttle you know evaluation of how these two markets are doing. So, you know, from what I can tell, New Jersey is doing quite well. Um, we actually wrote a story this week about the first three months of New Jersey sales. The growth was, I believe, at 10%, whereas Illinois, if you compared the start of the Illinois market to the start of the Jersey market, Illinois was 3%, Jersey's was 10 so Jersey got off to a very strong start and they had limited selection. So you could only mm-hmm. buy flour and vapes to start. You, there were no edibles. There was none of the good stuff. Um, pre-roll, couldn't do pre-rolls. Um, so like I went to uh, Rise Dispensary, which is owned by Green Thumb Industries. Everybody loves those dog walkers, those little tiny mini pre-rolls. Couldn't sell them. But you could sell, you could see them on the other side of the store for the medical but you couldn't buy them in the rep. So I'm just saying all that because New Jersey had definitely some constraints around it in its early days and it's still put up some huge numbers. Um, so I feel like, new, and, and they're starting to add new form factors. So the, the, the dispensaries are filling up with different products and kind of like Massachusetts, early days of dispensaries in Massachusetts, not a lot of selection, but boy, you go into them now and lots and lots of choice just like a California dispensary now. So New Jersey is well on its way. And I think from what I understand, everybody seems pretty happy about where it's going. And New York's just, it's it's a mess. Real quick stick on New Jersey. So is New Jersey, is it all just, uh, and this may be hard to tell, is it all just New Jersey residents that are um, buying from there or are they actually getting the Pennsylvania folks to drive up or the New York people that can't get access? Yeah, That's really driving it. I don't want to, I I wouldn't say that's really driving it, but it's certainly helping for sure. Okay. 
Um, is that going to push New York to get its act together? Because they're going to start to see the, the, ta- the tax numbers in New Jersey, right? You're going to see Phil Murphy, you know, trotting out like big bags of cash, right? And going, this is all cannabis money. And Governor Hochul is going to go, I want some of that too. What's going to get New York to get their shit together? I, so... Here's the situation, the way I see it in New York. I think New York looks at New Jersey and says, yeah, but we're going to we're going to do all this social equity stuff. Um, So we're going to do it. We're going to do it the right way. And they have very laudable ideas of giving these first licenses to people that were incarcerated or affected by uh, cannabis arrests or, or whatever, and give them the first shot versus giving it to the corporate cannabis that's already in the New York market that's selling medical marijuana that have been selling it for years at a loss, losing millions and millions of dollars for years. Um, they're, they're second in line. So the problem though that they have right now is the New York Cannabis Control Board lost its general counsel, its lawyer. Walked out. The guy walked out. I'm hmm. done. Out. Walked out. There's no counsel now on the cannabis control board. None. There's not a lawyer. There are no rules. I, and I play one on TV. There are no rules and regs. So how can you? And and I love Tremaine Wright. I think she's amazing. She's the head of. She's the chair of the cannabis control board in New York. She's out there saying we're going to have sales by the end of the year. There's no program. You've got four months to, to do this, and there's no program. There's no rules and regs. There's and no nobody lawyer can get their, and and So even if there was rules and regs and the lawyer, four months is not enough time for a grower to grow dry. Well, but process. you can get the medical. You can you can get what's being grown in the medical side. To that's, go a, to, that's assuming that you're going to allow for diversion, right? Which is the well, good the for diversion, right? So, so uh, like, but, 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 but you know, you can't do that. Like if it's grown for medical, it has to be used for medical. Like you can't, it's, it, they, they, they well, segment they, the crops. They are growing for adult use. So they'll be able they to wholesale. Yeah. They'll be able to wholesale, okay. but the, you, you're back to the problem of, and again, it's a great idea to 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 do the social equity stuff. Absolutely, everybody agrees with this. Is it a great idea for them to be the first people out? The problem is, is that, and and you guys know this industry as well as I do. It's incredibly complicated. It's very expensive. It's challenging for people that know how to do this. The people that are even doing it now say how hard it is to do it. Now you're going to give a license to someone who's never done this before, has zero experience doing this, and they're going to open up a brick and mortar store doing a million in sales in a month. It's just set up for failure. And then on top of that, like, so here's another example. Um, I was talking to a company yesterday. Um, So the only thing that New York has out right now um, for, for review are packaging rules and regs. One of the one this this company told me one of the issues in packaging is that they want like twenty five percent of it to be recyclable, and oh. he's like there isn't a packaging company in the state of New York with recyclable packaging. He's like it doesn't exist. Well, so again, can we un- are- unpack packaging for one second because it is such a fascinating issue. Show me another industry 
that is a consumer product that has anywhere near the regulatory constraints that cannabis does, right? Look at tobacco, look at alcohol, look at candy, look at any of them. They don't have child-resistant packaging. They don't have um, individual dosed packaging. But for cannabis, you know, if you're going to have something, the, the, the regulations around them are such that it has to be it has to be done in a way that's absolutely prohibitive from an expense perspective. It's a disincentive to consume and it generates a tremendous amount of waste. If cannabis is state legal and acceptable, why do we need to have such unbelievably overbearing regulation? And I, I'm not asking you to defend the regulation, but it just, it, it, it strikes me as, as people are still buying into the the drugs the are bad, thesis okay. of the, yeah yeah <laughs> right right that's it it's like it's it's the this is your brain on drugs right yeah well and I, I, that, that was the point I was you know this company was making with me is like the recyclable thing it's like look that's a great idea it's kind of like the social equity thing it's a great idea love the idea wonderful idea think it's awesome however the reality is there's no recyclable cannabis packaging in the state of New York right now. So it's, it's the, I, so ultimately in some, the New York market right now has these grand ideas that are now smashing into the face of reality. And that's where it's at. And there's just no way I think anything's gonna get off the ground. And then you've got the illicit market, which is thriving. And Tremaine's like, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna transition them to legal. All right. Yeah, that went that that went over real well in California, you know, and they're just they're getting entrenched. I mean, if if the state of New York would have gone after these guys in the early days, you might have had a chance. But these guys are very well, you mean gone after them in terms of arrest or gone after them well, in terms see, that's of conversion? The problem. I mean, you couldn't really arrest them because there weren't any laws. It got decriminalized and no program set up. Well, and the other side of it so, is you can't arrest them. You can't, it's, it, you can't it's hard to arrest no laws. They didn't break a law. Well, and on top <laughs> of that, even if the, let's say there was a law, right? But you have guys like Cure, you have companies like Cure Relief, or you have companies like Acreage, or or any of the companies that are in New York who are legally selling medical. You could say to to those who are illicit, stop, get licensed. We're going to find a program and pay for you to get licensed, but. You know, it, then you're going back to that war on drugs and targeting those who are are the most vulnerable. It doesn't make. Yeah, they sent these yeah. assist letters out to them and said, "This is going to affect your chance to get a real license in the future." And uh, it had it was like it had no teeth, and mm -hmm. I I think it's just really going to be a huge mess. Um, and it, it already is. Uh, I think really the most kind of in a strange way, the most promising dispensary is going to be the one from the Shinnecock Indians that Tilt Holdings is involved with. They're likely going to open up in February of 2023 and they don't have to answer to the state. So, and they, they can choose what products they want to put on their shelves and Tilt will easily be able to shovel in their eight brands 
And the weird thing is, is it's in one of the most conservative counties on Long Island. I say that's on Long Island, right? Yeah, it's on Long Island. It's it's right before you get to the Hamptons. And it's, I I think it's Suffolk County. Suffolk and Nassau are really conservative and they both said they don't want cannabis dispensaries in their their counties. So here you've got a county. But there are plenty of liquor stores. There are plenty of liquor stores. It's like, but the Shinnecocks might be the first ones out there. And good for them. Right. Good for them. And I think that's going to be to me. I don't know. I just I, I just don't see how you can start sales by the end of this year. When you have no program and no lawyer to even review the language of the program, it, it's it's insanity. Um, I, I mean, I, it, I, it really comes back to I mean, this all comes back to the tension between the the the, the federal prohibition and this patchwork of state by state laws and regulations and you know the 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 reality is even in dc there is this tension between those who are still prohibitionists so we'll just put them away right and the chuck schumers who are corporatists and then you have you know senator booker who is social justice first and it doesn't seem like there is a middle ground between the Schumers and the, the Bookers. And they, it feels to me from the outside that we are losing the good for the perfect. Am I wrong? Are we losing the good for the perfect? Is there a good enough? It's almost the, the same scenario as the situation in New York. So you've got this idealized version of what you want it to be a la Booker coming into, you know, conflict with the realities of capitalism and business. And you can't, you know, I I was in some conference and somebody said something and it just was very profound was it's very hard to do social engineering. And that's kind of what social equity is. It's trying to engineer a social situation and it's very hard to do that. And you've seen several states attempt to do it and each one's criticized for it. I don't think there's any way that's perfect or 100% gonna be the best way. I, I, I think it's just gonna be, to your point, a, a catch as catch can. And, and you're right, having all these different states with all these different rules and regs makes it really hard for companies to have a profit and, and be able to you know, consolidate operations or whatever. Um, I, I don't think, I think, you know, federal legalization obviously would help with the banking, but it's also not having and has created opportunities for some of these closed loop banking systems and companies, which is good on them. And I really think that the states are going to fight having interstate uh, transporting of cannabis because hmm. why Why would they want that? Then all the plans. You talk, talk to Adam Smith from the, the Craft Cannabis Coalition up in Oregon. He's the one who is um, pushing hard on, on getting an interstate compact between Oregon, California, and I think they Washington got too much product. They got too much product. They got to dump it into other markets. I mean, look, half the black market, or the illicit market in New York is all Oregon weed because it's, you know, the same in California. They're dumping it on the market for, you know, as low as a hundred bucks a pound or 300 bucks a pound. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's cheap. That's some cheap skunk weed you got there. <laughs> but 
But I think that if they do that, it'll be a disaster for so many companies because at the end of the day, you'll just have it all grown in like two or three states and each state is going to lose out on, on that. Whereas right now they can, they, they can protect some of their farmland. You've got farmers in every state that are benefiting from this and within these closed systems with each state, you know, it, it benefits the state. You've got all the, you get all those employees that are working. You start and tax revenue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You start sending all that to two or three states that can grow it really cheaply and same over. Well, let's stick on the, the federal government because, you know, the, the Democrats right now have been on a little bit of a legislative role. Um, Chuck Schumer's gotten quite a few bills out of the Senate um, recently and with President Biden uh, most recently taking on the, the student loan debt. Finally, um, you know, is there a chance that this White House could start to get a little bit more brazen and take a lead on cannabis? Finally, like Chuck Schumer's been a long, long time advocate on this and. Joe Biden's now seeming to listen to more of the progressive end of the party. Is there a compromise that could be made here? Like, you know, what Lewis was saying earlier from between the bookers and the, the Schumer point of view, add in some progressive in there. Is there something that we might be able to see happen? Maybe after the midterms, I think right now they, they see um, abortion as the, main important topic right now. I don't think that they're, I, I feel like cannabis is just not on the radar. Um, I think before all this, it could have been, but it, it certainly wouldn't be anytime soon. I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's got that importance right now. I think that a lot of, and I don't know the politics that well, I'm not as in, involved in the political realm. Um, my gut is is that they got bigger fish to fry mm -hmm. and it hasn't held back the cannabis industry so far. <laughs> I mean, it's been barreling ahead in all these states. So I feel like they're just like, hey, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Let it just keep growing the way it is. Yeah. I mean, clearly, you know, if you're a student of history, you know that with alcohol prohibition, once we hit a certain tipping point for states that were starting to go back on alcohol prohibition. Then finally the government said, okay, fine. Uh, we've got. It, it took till from 1933 to 1965 for the last state. So it took almost 30 years before the, the last state went wet, you know, and that I think it was Alabama. So you're talking about, you know, it, it, I think it's what 37 states now have some form of, of program, whether it's medical or adult use. Even if the federal government descheduled or legalized mm -hmm. tomorrow, it's going to take decades for this stuff to sort out. Decades. It's it's yeah. it's not simple. And and the I reality is, it's yeah. not even. They're not even. They don't even care about the constituents. Truly, they politicize it in the sense that I mean, look at the state of Texas. I'm from Texas. People smoke a ton of weed in that state, and because the conservative voices have taken over, you've got now this state that is like no way, no how on adult use cannabis. They have one of the most restrictive medical programs there is, and. Yet, if you ask the constituents, they're overwhelmingly want it, but they 
the conservatives, even though they know their constituents want it, nope, it's an it's not on the table, not but, at all. But on the same oh, end, we're seeing. But on the same end, we're seeing states like Oklahoma and Arkansas buck that trend. Like Oklahoma <laughs> has so many cannabis stores that are and, and companies that are just operating out of there. We're seeing right? Arkansas this November is going to vote on um, cannabis legislation, which like wild, like that would be one of the last states I, I would think of um, actually doing it. And so I think I think there's just there, there's still that little bit of hope that I think when we see these these little bit of progression, you know, a couple of years back, everybody would get overly excited. Right. They're like, oh, man, things are starting to come up. And it's like the the, the, the rock is rolling down the hill. It's going to happen. I think it's a little bit of bumps and bruises there. But, you know, if Arkansas and Oklahoma are willing to get on board, I think Missouri, Missouri Kansas, like, you know, Kansas got on the ballot this year. It's it's crazy. The, the tax yeah. revenue, the job creation, it, it, it's at a certain there, there is that tipping point still does exist where, you know, even Texas is going to have to get on board. I, you know, you would think um, and from what I understand, there's lots of Texas license plates headed to Oklahoma to, to buy. <laughs> and they just need to somebody it. needs to dose really, Greg mean, Abbott and Oklahoma, let him trip. All and Oklahoma see what, has is, is meat and oil and oil is like <laughs> and meat. So, yeah. <laughs> cannabis i mean arkansas has walmart arkansas 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 has yeah walmart but you look at missouri right missouri is is a dead red state and it has one of the the fastest growing medical markets yeah and um you know one of the newest um multi-state operators in the country is based out of missouri right green it's green light and those guys are i'm sorry green state they are smart smart guys who are building up a multi-state uh, MSO that's starting in red states, um, and it's just it's it, it just frustrates me the impact of President Nixon to today, right? The right. The, the 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 policies that he put into place were specifically designed to target people of color. Um, the poor, those who are open-minded, and it's still 50 years, 52 years later, still having an impact. Yeah, yeah. I, Imagine I, 50 I, years from now what Trump's impact is going to be. Yeah, I mean, who who would have thought Illinois would have been the biggest player that there is? I mean, other than, you know, the fact that they had Chicago. So you do start to see some of these states like Michigan, um, in Illinois doing really well. And then you wonder if maybe that's why they were able to affect their neighboring states, that those neighboring states saw it and went, wow, it's not so horrible. Um, I know that kind of flies in the face of Texas and Oklahoma being close, but Texans don't think that Oklahoma is any threat to them except in football. And so, <laughs> so, but I would see, I would argue that those middle states, that the, the, the heartland states are looking at Illinois and are looking at Michigan, um, watching their residents go over the state line to buy stuff and saying, wow, that we really, really missing the boat on this. And, you know, that's, that's why I think those states, and, and I also think it's to your point, Lewis, about some of these up and coming states, you know, again, not to, you know, flog a dead horse, but, the ascend choice to go to Ohio over New York. 
I was just like, wait, what? But if you can own it, it, look, if you can own more in a limited license state and, and make a profit versus going to this bigger state, which is so messed up. Yeah. I mean, I can see it starts to make sense to make that business decision. It's business at the end of the day. And, and, and let's, let's stick on, let's stick on the business side here because, um, Deb, we've used a, a ton of your time today. And so, uh, we had just have a couple more questions for you before we, we let you go. Um, but I want to go back to something. Oh, we're, we're never letting you we're, go. We're never letting Deb go. It's a very temporary letting never go. Never going to give you up. <laughs> um, I want to go back. Hey, you, you, <laughs> that's an awesome dad joke, by the way. Here's your props for that. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned the big five earlier in this conversation and how, you know, they're making a lot of money and my, uh, something I've always been thinking about is how do these smaller or mid tier, you know, either single state operators or multi, uh, smaller multi-state operators even try to compete in the long run with, with these bigger companies, you know, is it going to be M and a ultimately the, the solution is it, it like we've seen Cresco by Columbia care Tilray merge with Afria. Um, I think it was earlier this year, Verano purchased uh, goodness growth. Like, is that the only way that these companies are, are going to be able to survive in the long run? You know, some of them will want to go down that road of we're, we're going to grow if we get bigger. We'll, we'll hook up with somebody bigger and that may be their, their full, their, their, their ultimate goal, which is to get acquired. Look, that was my goal was to mm-hmm. get acquired. I was okay with that. That was my goal. But I've also talked to a lot of independents that they have no desire for that. They, you know, several of these companies, they don't want that. They do not want to be bought out by one of these big names. And you could argue that at the end of the day, if you have a good product, you will be competitive. So if I'm looking at, if I'm in my town and I have my choice between my kind of my mom and pop local dispensary, that's got some amazing products versus the the big company one, but it doesn't like, I don't like their products as much Then they're going to win out on having a good product. And that's just, again, that's just back to business 101. Um, so I think that there actually is going to be room in the market for some of these, you know, SSOs, as they call them, the single state operators. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, that that there is going to be a market for the SSOs. I think they'll be more tapped into their clientele. Um, I think they'll do, you know, more special events for their clientele because they'll know them better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that they'll just be invested in the community, whereas maybe the bigger ones who have 175 stores, you know, how tapped in are you to that community when it's just three stores out of 175? Oh yeah. And being here in Arizona, like I I can't agree more. Like I love going to the the local operators here, like shout out soul flower, shout out Sunday goods. Like those are my uh, go-tos. Shout out potential advertisers. (laughs) Exactly, well, I, exactly. But I, there's a cure leaf right around the corner from my house. I get uh I'm on all the 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 text message get the deal of the day from Harvest and those guys. But even when the deals are so good, I still want to go and, and support the local people that are doing local events and and doing all of that. And so that really does resonate with me that in the long run there there is the 
opportunity for those single state operators to survive. My hope is that they don't get swallowed up, though, with just the the financial constraints of this industry and, and what it takes, like you said earlier, to just be able to operate and stay profitable. That's a really tough task for, for these people to have to take on. It is. And I mean, look, I'll, I'll, you know, you go to Great Barrington, Massachusetts, there's seven dispensaries in this tiny town in the Berkshires, seven. Um, so you, ha- you know, if you know them, you're, you're like, well, am I going to go to the luxury one? Am I going to go to the one that grows their own? Am I going to go to the one that's female owned? You know, do I, you know, which, you know, it starts, you start to kind of break it down like that. Like here's, and to your kind of same way you're, you were making that calculation that, and then you can also look at companies like insect cannabis, which is kind of on the East side of the state of Massachusetts. And they're, they're a privately owned small operator. They they are beautiful dispensaries and they do these Insta chocolates. They actually sell them in other places too. I think they're the best cannabis chocolate edibles that are on the market right now. And that's a small operator. And I, yeah, I, I would drive two hours to go and get that candy bar. And I have. <laughs> so I think that, yeah, if you have that good of a product, you are going to be successful. Um, and that's, and, and I, you know, I, felt like you even saw that a little bit in Seattle. You know, there were some dispensaries that were just down and dirty. Like we got literally everything that's made out on the market and the cases are kind of old retail cases. And it looked like a, like a shopping mall kind of supermarket type store. It was very not fancy. And then you have the ones with the iPad on the counter and it's very fancy. And so I think that that's, yeah, that's where it's going to roll out. But I do think that there's still going to be a lot of room in the market for the smaller player. Are they going to have the fancy iPad on the counter? Maybe not, but they might have some, some cool merch and they, you know, to your point, more community attentive. So I I think Mm -hmm. there will be room for them. So Deb, one last question, and then we're going to let you go. Um, You know, you have alluded to a bunch of different stories that kind of have blown your mind this week, whether it was, you know, Ascend walking away from New York or or others. Is there a story that you're working on that you can just tip us off to a little bit that you're really excited to publish, whether it's later (laughs) this week or something that's because this isn't going to go up for a couple of weeks. Right. So you're not going to scoop yourself. This is going up next week. This is going up next week, so you're going to completely <laughs> scoop yourself. But realistically, um, like, is there a story that either you're working on or that you're thinking like, damn, I really want to touch, dig into like what, yeah. what's yet to be covered? Yeah, so here's here, – I, and I'm happy to tell you some of the stuff we're, we're working on. We're working on a story about the level of debt that some of these cannabis companies have taken on at this point. Some of them have enormous levels of debt. There are debt servicers that are happy, 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 happy to give them all the debt they want. (laughs) And Hmm. there are some eye-popping numbers. And so we're going to be working on that. Um, That's the kind of thing that Green Market Report does really well, is really diving into some very wonky stuff. Uh, Debt numbers, who cares? But this is going to raise some red flags on companies and to your point, Lewis, that's that's where we serve the shareholders and that's where we serve the industry is we, we're that check on the industry that says, hey, your debt's a little high. Might want to think about that. Um, a lot of them that have good CEOs are already addressing it. 
But we're working on that. We're also working on a nice Florida deep dive. Our breaking news reporter lives in Florida. So we're going to take advantage of his location and do a deep dive on the Florida market, where it's at, where it's going. Um, so we, we're going to do an, a pretty exhaustive look at just Florida. Um, and we've got John Schroeder starting. And John is coming to us with uh, some some good scoopy stories. Um which we're excited that he's going to be a part of our team. He's an amazing journalist and he does do a lot of scoops and he's a very good investigative journalist. Um, so we're excited to have him. So yeah, I would expect that you're going to see some really cool stuff coming out on green market report. Awesome. All right, Nick, you want to take us out? Yeah. Can't, can't wait to read it. Deb, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Um, and for, uh, everybody listening, make sure to go check out all the work from Deb and her team, uh, uh, check out the, the agenda for the tech summit taking place September 8th in San Francisco and, and stay tuned at greenmarketreport.com to hear about all the different news and events they've got coming up. Deb, thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you guys. Thanks again to Deb Borchardt of Green Market Report for joining us and talking about all things cannabis. Make sure to read all the news from Deb and her team and check out their upcoming events at greenmarketreport.com. And as always, thanks for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Lewis Ann or I, you can find us at the Twitter handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Shoot us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We want to hear about all the topics, guests, feedback that you have on the show. Um, we love being able to interact with all you guys and don't forget to subscribe to the green rush in your favorite podcatcher one take shay one take